You are listening to the Intentionally International Podcast. I am Anitra Kitts. I'm an ordained minister in the Presbyterian Church USA, and I'm a freelance writer and occasional preacher in Munich, Germany. And I am the Reverend Matthew Lafferty. I'm an ordained pastor in the United Methodist Church. I currently serve as the director of the Methodist Ecumenical Office Rome. Prior to my appointment to Rome, I served nearly a decade in English-speaking international congregations in Europe. Those of you who have listened to the last few episodes have undoubtedly picked up on the fact that there's a new voice added to the mix of interviewers. My name is David Smith. I joined the Intentionally International team last year after getting to know Anitra and Matthew through an interview they did with me about my research on international churches. Like many of you, over the past several months, all three of us have seen our worlds roar back to life in a post-COVID age. Honestly, we haven't been able to do as much with the podcast as we had hoped, but we learned a lot from the interviews we've conducted so far. This fall, we took a few moments to chat with one another about what we've learned and the new ideas that the interviews stoked in us. We thought we would share some of those thoughts with you in this special extended episode. Going forward, we hope to continue working on this project, yet we have concluded that releasing new seasons at specific times is frankly beyond our capacities at the moment. Instead, we plan to drop in every now and again when our work and travels bring us into contact with people who are passionate about international churches. So we invite you to grab a coffee or a cup of tea, put on your headphones, turn up the volume, and join us as we reflect together for the next few minutes on some of the insights that we've gleaned. Anitra will start us off with a few comments and questions on our interview with Pastor Nick Alorim Ahe Alamwalsi, who is the founding minister of the Living Generations Church in Hammensburg, Germany. To summarize quickly, if I can, Nick's congregation is a, he calls it a post-immigration congregation, that the children are the second generation of immigrants into Europe who are still not necessarily blending into existing congregations like patterns we might see in, in immigrations into the United States. Or a lot of the English-speaking congregations in non-English-speaking countries tend to be more first-generational or transitional. And it just started me thinking about well, maybe one of the things that I had not recognized about English-speaking congregations is the fact that they are intensely first-generational or transitional. They're kind of stuck in a place. So what did you guys think? There are several things that come to mind for me. Maybe I take them in, in order of some of the things you said. I think often there's a misconception that English-speaking congregations and non-English-speaking countries are affluent privileged, wealthy business people who are coming or diplomats who are coming for two or three year stint and then leaving. Maybe they're staying a bit longer, but it's about preservation of a particular religious cultural identity within the context uh, where they're living, knowing that they're going to be living in multiple places. So it, it presents its own challenges for integration, for larger engagement with, within the, the culture society. Certainly there, there's that element that exists, but I would say those days are long behind us where these types of congregations make up the majority of English-speaking communities that are, are in places like Germany or Austria or in Italy or in France, that one of the shifts that we see is 
as migration continues, as well as a transition to staff that were previously brought in from abroad who formed these congregations, the staff switching to becoming more local. It also reveals that these English-speaking congregations, in my experience, have a lot more stability. There obviously are people who come from, some who come from migrant backgrounds themselves. They immigrated with a partner and family, and they've decided to make their life permanently in a country, or they've married somebody from that nation, and so their their lives are there, and they buy or multicultural families and are looking for a way to bridge that, or the people who are coming looking for economic opportunity, and that could be those who come for high salary jobs or those who are, are folks who are coming from looking for unskilled work, but are coming in all kinds of different ways to, to a particular place that make up a, a community as well. My experience is in a place like in Vienna, the congregation I served before I came to Rome, was that by and large, most of the people there my first Sunday were the same people there my last Sunday, that it's a fairly stable place. And that even though there were a large number of people who had worked at the UN in Vienna and the various UN organizations based in Vienna, that they had worked there such a long time that they decided to make their lives even in retirement there. So we began to see second and even third generation emerge within that congregation. One of the things I was always curious about is that in Austria, they're teaching English in grade school. So by the second and certainly the third generation, their main language of communication is not English, but German, regardless of their cultural background. There might be a few who are raised in a particular linguistic grouping because their family and their and their home setting, but they would know German fluently and English would be another language. And so coming to church and English wasn't necessarily their most natural linguistic affinity. And yet they were wanting to come and participate in that community. So I, I wonder how that's linked to cultural ethnic identity. So some of second, third generations were clustering of particular cultural ethnic groupings. One of them was Ghanaians, for example. But it was interesting in that congregation because you had a number of family relationships. So some were marriages among several people of of two families had married together. So siblings had married siblings of another family. And so there was a sense that this was the family church. And so the church wasn't primarily about linguistics, but it was the church that the families attended together. I wonder how much I would think about it in, in terms of like third culture kids that it was a way you're not going to ever quite fully fit within one culture or the other. And so if you grow up in a culture where you have one parent who's Austrian and one parent who's not, most of your life is going to be in the quote unquote Austrian part because it's, you're going to go to school in German and that's the, so much of it's going to be the formation of being in a normal Austrian everyday society. We're coming to church on Sunday, which has a very different vision of being multicultural a different linguistic grouping was a way of trying to still accept, adapt, and live within the, the culture of the other parent, and those identities still continuing. It does help that, as I was saying earlier, children learn English, so it makes it easier for them to come. It'd be different if, if that congregation was a, a maybe a different language grouping that was less widely spoken, because they may have that language at home growing up, but they may not have it in school where it's reinforced and taught to them. So English while maybe not the language at home, was still the language at school they would get, which made it easier for them to participate in church. One of the things that Nick was talking about in terms of his congregation is the sense that post-migration 
generation was not going to fit into the migration generation's church, that the worldviews were enough different, as well as the language, that they were not necessarily speaking the family's tribal languages. And yet at the same time, they're, they're not necessarily fully German here in Germany. David, you have some experience with Nick and his congregation and some of your own experiences. Yes, I think an important thing to think about when we're looking at Nick's experience is that even if some of the same realities are taking place in his congregation as we might see in Anglophone congregations that are traditionally founded by white expatriates to other spaces, new individuals are engaging in those transitions. And so it is going to look a little different. So I think in some ways, we're simultaneously talking about very similar realities and then different contexts. And I think something that has been helpful for me in the specific congregations that I've looked at across context is to see that what I really think we're looking at in the congregations we traditionally think of as international churches, we're seeing more than a shift between becoming either a post migration church or a first generation church, I think we're really seeing a blurring of the lines where a congregation might gravitate toward one end or toward another, and it might change at different times in its life. But in fact, it's really a blurring of the lines in a both and and not an either or. And I think that brings unique challenges. I'll say specifically, rather than sort of talking amorphously as I am wont to do sometimes, I'll drill it down to two congregations that I studied for my thesis. So the first being the English Reformed Church in Amsterdam, which is in some ways one of the oldest examples of what I call an international Protestant Anglophone congregation, which I tried to simultaneously there contract and expand the definition of international church to make it more clear that by limiting what I'm talking about, I was hoping that there would be space for some of the things that Nick and others are talking about within this international church conversation. So the ERC in Amsterdam was founded in the 1600s, largely for Calvinist immigrants, or in some cases refugees, to Amsterdam who spoke English. And there was a similar Dutch church in London, and there were even some subsequently in the United States. In fact, the oldest corporation in the United States is the Collegiate Churches of New York, which were originally Dutch-speaking international churches in what was then New Amsterdam instead of New York. And so Obviously, this church hundreds of years ago had a very different makeup than it does today. When you go to the worship to the congregation today, even though it's duly affiliated with the Protestant Church in the Netherlands and the International Presbytery of the Church of Scotland, it is not a bunch of Netherlandish and Scottish folks worshiping in there. The congregation with its hundreds of members represents 30 or 40 different denominational backgrounds. In a different way, though, similarly, the church where I did most of my field study was here in Bonn at the American Protestant Church, which was originally founded as the embassy chapel for the American embassy here in Bonn. There's a long story with that, but there were multiple congregations, including a Catholic one that worshiped in the Stimson Memorial Chapel, which of course was named for Henry Stimson, the 
U.S. Secretary of War during World War II and so on. So it had a fundamentally American identity. Many of the architectural elements were even imported from the United States. And while maybe once in a while some other people would worship there, it was fundamentally designed as a home away from home for American diplomats. Yet with German reunification in 1999 and 2000, finally the embassy moved back to Berlin. And amidst all of that, a change in the congregation occurred and the congregation had to decide who it was going to be all over again. Currently, there are, to my knowledge, 31 uh, different nationalities represented in the church's membership, multiple different worship styles, multiple different traditions. So while the, the chapel clearly reflects that it was designed for sort of a mainline American Protestant background, where a Methodist, a Presbyterian, a Baptist, maybe an Episcopalian, though sometimes it's a little low church for our friends in the Episcopal Church, you can see now that it, it represents a much broader spectrum of what it means to be Christian. And I think the reality here is not that it became no longer an international church, no longer a home away from home for the people it was originally designed to minister to, but it, its definition of home expanded and changed and evolved. And I think this is important, and I won't ramble on too much, but one of the few sort of classical theologians that I included in my project, because I thought his work was truly relevant to what we're talking about, was the Swiss Reformed pastor and theologian Adolf Keller. He was largely responsible for forming what became the Bosset Ecumenical Institute and the Protestant Church in his country and so on. But he also, early in his ministry, was a pastor to Germany. German-speaking expatriates in Cairo. And that experience left him with a sense, and he, he used this to talk even more broadly of denominational traditions and so on. It led him to the conviction that every organization of human beings, but especially in the church, comes to a point in its history where they encounter an internal inconsistency with their practice, the empirical realities of their identity, and their founding mission. Now, for him, in some cases of theological inconsistency, that was a cause for repentance. But in other very practical ways, it was also a call to recognize a new reality. And so what I think we are seeing now in a lot of what we would traditionally talk about as international Anglophone congregations is not just a, an either or, either they will become second generation or they will not, but a phase in which they are grappling with their identity and will probably take some traits that might be associated with a second generation church and maintain some of those essential identity traits of an international church. And I would argue that this is not a phenomenon unique to international churches, although we can see it on a grassroots level in international churches, but is simply part of the way churches interact with culture across context. One of the things that Nick's paper and your conversation with him evoked was thinking about how foreign language communities like English-speaking congregations, which may have an existence that is 50 years or more, how they themselves are mirroring the experience that Nick has. It's just because it's my particular culture of, of which a congregations historically identified or been associated with, it's been harder to see that. Thinking about some of the examples you pointed out were congregations that had very strong identity with a particular cultural grouping that still has those relationships. But 
they're very different than they were 40, 50 years ago when they were 60 years ago when they were first established and seeing how these congregations aren't stagnant. And maybe this is where I've experienced sometimes conflict within some of these congregations is that they begin to be what Nick describes as post-migration churches, but there's internal conflict about, about what identity they become. Do we preserve a particular identity of the past? Is there a fidelity to the, the establishing identity or the foundational identity that maybe is no longer particularly relevant because we were established by primarily a British group? And now all of a sudden, there are very, very few people who are British, and yet the founding group was predominantly that way, so it was shaped in a very British way. Or do we continue to evolve, to take what we know of that from our home experiences, from the establishing identity, the identities of our particular location, and begin to weave it together in new and different ways. I see that happen in a number of English-speaking congregations that were historically established by white North Americans or Europeans, and a lot of searching and discernment, often unintentionally, because the demographic of the congregations have shifted. So it was easy to preserve a so-called American identity when people came and went because they themselves had little influence from the particular culture. But the moment you stop being so transient and people are living there, then they begin to ask the questions and are influenced in substantial ways about the culture in which they are not living temporarily, but are living long-term or the rest of their lives in. The influence of that, both the acceptance of that and saying, well, this is interesting. How do we integrate that into our experience? Or saying, we don't want to be that those ways of accepting or rejecting the culture when you're living there long-term or the rest of your life. Now that I've thought about it for a while, I do see what Nick's saying. At first, I struggled a bit with it, but what he's grappling with and discerning and trying to describe is something that's happened quite quickly. So you're beginning to see this change within a year, two years, three years. It's a short time span where for established congregations, it's been a much longer, slower process, and it's maybe been harder to discern these kinds of questions of what does it mean to be so-called post-migration. And when you're saying that, I'm thinking about our conversations with Sunny in oh, Waterloo. Thank you. Or Jody in Paris where corporate headquarters leaves, Caterpillar leaves, but there are some people who did not move with the company, although the company brought them there. They retired in place. So they're remnant in a certain way. Whereas in Paris, COVID, I think everywhere, Paris, everywhere, all congregations have had to, COVID cuts off the constant inflow, the new inflow. So you're starting to work with who is standing still and also trying to work out well, what does that mean when we're worshiping in these particular situations? But drives me also into the question around identity and who preserves identity in a congregation? Who holds and triumphs over incoming folks? Someone might be coming in with a very strong personality and had a particular say, charismatic way of worshiping versus an existing identity that might have been more frozen, chosen kind of a style. So who owns the identity, who enforces the identity in these situations? I find myself wondering where that kind of conflict happens in first-gen or migration transitional congregations. The second-gen or post-migration needing to just plain step out of the arena in order to get space to do what they need to do. I've also sort of 
thought in that direction before. However, if we were to think theologically for a moment, which of course we've been doing about this, I think that any organization which claims to have arrived at an end in history will inevitably be confounded by the empirical evidence against it as it lives out its life. I think that there will come a time when Nick's congregation will have to ask the same question. Will it become a post-post-migration church? Will it become something else? You asked the question about identity, and I think that this is key for understanding any kind of church experience, but especially in congregations that are living out their lives in a culture that is different from the one in which their founding identity originated. I really do believe there's a dialectical relationship between identity, change in a situation, and the founding values of the congregation. To give an example, the American Protestant Church in Bonn, when the congregation was seriously reevaluating its identity as the embassy left, they had an option. Would they, like many other American churches, change their name to Bonn International Church? Or would they take on the name for their nonprofit association of the American Protestant Church in Bonn, or some variation of that. They ultimately chose to stick with the American label, though that may have been off-putting to some, because it valued and gave a sense of identity to the history of the congregation that had at that time been there for almost 50 years. And so even today, you talk to people in the congregation who say, we came here because we wanted to have an American church experience. And I have been confounded and asked many times what people mean by that. There have been as many variations as the number of people whom I asked. And so I think that does represent, even in the naming of this congregation I studied, that dialectical relationship between fidelity to its founding ministry, to its history, and then also trying to embrace something new and ultimately arriving at its ever-evolving sense of identity. With all that said, I think that you are really on to something here, which is posing a question to which I don't know that we have an answer yet, which is, okay, let's point to specific situations and specific distinctions at which that change occurs. And I think that's a beautiful question. Maybe I'm wrong. I'm not sure that anyone can answer it yet. And I think that's really why this is so valuable as a conversation and why it's so important to pool this data, not just for the purpose of pooling data in a podcast, but for getting many voices together to ask this question, especially in the wake of the pandemic, when all organizations, if they're smart, will be asking questions about their identity for the future. What I'm struck by in Nick's story is in some ways his own personal story of coming to Germany from Togo, being interested in mission and evangelism, coming and planting a church. He had in a very short time lots of conversations that others might take one or two generations to have. Maybe that was in part because he came with a strong missional imperative. And so there was an intentionality also within his own academic studies to evaluate in ways that most congregations aren't, if you know, we're honest. So they don't sit around kind of evaluating themselves often and thinking about who they are and who do they want to be and what that means for their witness in the world and what does that mean for congregational life and what does that mean for diaconal work within a particular community. 
but he had that quite accelerated, realizing I've had these experiences in the longstanding local churches in my neighborhood or in the community where I live, and not all of them have been bad. There have been some good things about that. And I've also seen how trying to preserve the particular expression of my faith that I know from my place of birth doesn't make sense within this context. And in light of my own experiences that I've had in more recent years. And so how is there a blending of those? How is there a reevaluation about what does it mean? And I think this is what those who have been on the move, those who have been engaged in mission have struggled with the whole history of Christianity as a missionary movement has struggled with. How do we be authentic to what we know to be truth? How do we know how to be authentic to what we know is the most meaningful way for us to worship God? to convey the Christian faith, to invite others into God's saving love, at the same time, be able to speak into the cultural context where we live. You see this in the first century, in a lot of Paul's writings, whether you like Paul's writings or not, you know, you see this question posed time and time again, and we see this within mission movements. And I think if the church really is a missional church, that, that of course, congregations are struggling with this as well. I also find what may be more challenging for some congregations that are foreign language communities that have have less fidelity to particular denominational identity is that there's more push and pull about who we are and about who we will become. If you're clearly a Lutheran congregation or a Methodist congregation or Catholic congregation, there's less of that push and pull because there's a particular theological center that remains, that can be reinterpreted, that can be made relevant in a different way within your particular cultural context, that could even impact how you worship, right? It's not that it holds everything in place, but there's a particular framework where some of the congregations that, David, you've spoken about, like in the American church in Bonn, is that they have a particular history of a pan-Protestant or generic Protestant identity. But what does that mean now? Because it was artificial in the first place, because it never really existed in an American context. And two, there's also a broad vision of trying to be inclusive of people of different Christian confessions within a particular place that begins to push and pull. And I think when people were more transient, they're more likely to accept what's there, even though it's not their own because they know they're not going to be there. That was my experience in Moscow. The congregation I had in Moscow was much more transient and also had a very broad Protestant identity. It was easier for those to come in and say, look, we're here two or three years. We like the people here. We like you. This is not what we would normally choose if we were at home, but we're not at home, so it's okay. Those in the congregation who were there long-term had a different relationship with that identity had a different conversation with the identity because this was not something they accept and then go home. This is their home now. And so how do they live more fully into that identity or how do they impact that identity in, in the long term? If I could just piggyback off that and say sort of an existential comment about this pan-Protestant experience, that's something that I, having had ecumenical experiences growing up, ultimately chose to become one particular denomination when I went to, to be ordained because I valued the theology and worship life of that tradition. And so there is this sense of being home at the American Protestant Church of Bonn, but always being away from home 
Presbyterians have this cadence that we use when we say the Lord's Prayer. And yes, the words are same, but the, even the cadences are different that we use. Do we say forever or forever and ever, trespasses or debts? These little things that jog our memory that we are home, but also away from home. And I think that there's that existential experience, but also anecdotally what I've heard from others during the pandemic that has added an extra layer to international church life which is that when the services have for the past two years been largely online anyway, a lot of people have found that they may as well connect to their church back in their home country, that they did have a deep resonation with the order of service or with the sermon style or whatever. And in some ways that has produced an additional crisis of identity for these congregations that, and this is not disparaging, but have said, hey, we'll have a little taste of everything. So it's lowest common denominator of what's pen Protestantly acceptable are having to find new ways of being creative when digital presence has become a reality in our world and will likely stay one moving forward. And then possibly in a somewhat different direction, a question I have been posing to myself that I did not ask in any of my formal research, but that I think would be profitable for the podcast is this question of cultural hybridity. In intercultural theory and in intercultural theology and philosophy, people have began asking the question, is the word intercultural or transcultural, are those words even helpful anymore in an age of globalization, in a post-pandemic world? Because intercultural implies that there are two separate bubbles or multiple separate bubbles of culture. And these things are defined as American culture or Thai culture. And that these are different bubbles that sometimes maybe they'll bump up against each other, but inevitably they remain separate. And what hybrid cultural theory is proposing is that actually that has never been the case. Cultures have always been blending and bumping up against one another and intermeshing with each other and are in fact interdependent, even when they're separated geographically as far as their origins are concerned. And I don't have any definite proposals for how that can be applied to this question or to the broader questions related to international churches at this time. However, I think that it is essential that we think about this and start incorporating those insights into our understanding of international churches, because I think that we are seeing people live this experience in these congregations. And in some ways, this takes the third culture kid discussion to the next level. I think home, where do we find God and how do we know God speaks our language? And how do we know if God can still find us where we are, maybe behind some of these questions? What's interesting is that we're three first generation migrants, and maybe that's not a great way to describe who we are, because I'm not sure those would be the terms we would describe ourselves. But we are not the second or third generation for sure, right? So it's, I very much get what both of you had said about where is home when we have left a country continent to move to another continent and a different language that doesn't resemble the cultural traditions of where we were former lives or previous lives or earlier lives were located. For me, I'm quite cognizant where I want to go on Sunday for worship now that I don't have congregational responsibilities. I want to go someplace where there's a cadence 
more similar to what I know in the Lord's Prayer, where there are people who share similar experiences of longing for God, longing for home, but being in a place that I'm making my home, but doesn't feel yet fully my home, if it ever will feel like my home. I'd be curious to hear what the third generation has to say. As an American with the immigrating members of my family arriving all before 1920, nobody comes in after that. You guys have that too. We have that experience, at least in an American cultural place where we also look like the dominant skin color or in the dominant culture. We're coming out of a culture that became dominant culture. We have dominant skin color. We're not inclined to get anybody stopping us on the streets in America going, so where are you from? People in Germany will not stop me on the street and ask me where I'm from until I get around to trying to speak in Deutsch. And then it becomes very quickly apparent that I am not. But I think what we're actually trying to ask is our next congregations, he says, they are German. You can't say that these people may be of Ghanaian ancestry, but they are German. They're German speaking. They are German taught. They are culturally German much more than they are Ghanaian. And yet they are still needing to have or wanting to find a safe worship space or meaningful worship space that still straddles their inheritance with their current worldview. And I think that's a powerful insight to which you just pointed there, because just speaking personally, I don't ask the question, what does it mean to be German? In fact, I think as a first generation, if we want to take on that label for the purposes of illustration here... I have become more and more cognizant every day living abroad of my Americanness. But I think this is a natural thing when living abroad. You think about your otherness and your home country identity far more than you ever would otherwise. I mean, on 4th of July, yeah, everybody has a party, whatever. But how often do folks back home think about what does this mean to be an American? Well, I certainly didn't as often as I do now in a host culture. However, that is a different conversation than a third generation person might be having. I think maybe the distinguishing factor in the particular churches I looked at was the sometimes intentional, sometimes not so intentional blending of all these experiences of first, second, third generation, and so on. Going back to that question about finding a home turning it toward, as you all have raised here, a pastoral perspective. I think it's possible to talk about the whole mission and identity of the church universal as a community of people who are simultaneously trying to and have already found their home in God through Jesus Christ, we would say. One of the reasons I chose this language of home was because most anthropologists and sociologists agree it's one of the few universal concepts. Basically, they said there's certainly no universal definition of what home is, but this longing for home, this need for home, there's enough evidence to say it can be spoken of as universally human. And several folks who have done work on space and place and the way it relates to religion have suggested that religion can either ground you in a space or a place by saying, hey, this sacred shrine is essential to your faith, or as post-enlightenment versions of Christianity have done, it can challenge you to find your place regardless of the space you are in. 
And I think as people who have a vested interest and a deep concern for international churches, perhaps we should think about mission in terms of helping people find their home, their place in God. Really, one of my favorite conversations was with Terry in Geneva, who talked about incorporating music from everywhere and how to go about doing that within a congregational basis. Because my sense of home or my hunger for a home or homesickness for home may make me very resistant to learning or modifying liturgy or hymns, because I might lose that. This might be my last thread back home, and I might lose that if we stop singing it in favor of singing someone else. And I thought that Terry and Geneva had a really great way of saying, no, this is the way we're going to introduce it, and we're just going to keep introducing, we're going to keep mixing it. And if you haven't listened to that episode, it's there on your podcast list. But part of Terry's conversation was around What's the difference between an international congregation and an intentionally international congregation? What are we doing when we are coming in from all around the world, but one culture dominates over another? Are we culturally bound people? I hear sometimes in our conversation saying it's inherently wrong to be an American congregation in Germany. Is it? I don't know. Because we are culturally bound people, right? Our culture does shape how we see and experience the world. And because English-speaking congregations, because of the role that English plays internationally, is one of the few languages that can bridge a lot of cultures. There, there are a few of these kind of European colonial languages that bridge people, English, French, Spanish. These are ones that draw people across a lot of different national and continental and cultural contexts. As we've been talking, one of the things I was looking up on my phone was my experience of foreign language communities in Vienna and thinking about what it meant in a city that's predominantly Roman Catholic. Their English-speaking communities don't have the same kind of push and pull in terms of what it means for worship. They have a set liturgy. It certainly does for community life, kind of a question about what does community life look like. But I'm not sure that their Czech-speaking community has those same kinds of questions. Or their Arabic-speaking community, or their Tamil-speaking community. You know, I guess I'm trying to revisit some of the assumptions we have, because I certainly like Terry and what Terry said, and it resonates. I even brought him to Vienna when I was there to lead a seminar on it. That's how much I like it. At the same time, it creates a new culture that I'm not sure that's for everybody. Because I think it's easy to hold up his example of how we blend the experience. But David, as you pointed out, I've never realized how American I am until I don't live in the United States anymore, right? How important these kind of U.S. holidays are to me than they were before. How important it is to spend time with people who share a similar cultural heritage. Because it's so much unspoken between you. You don't, you know, like you don't need to go and be apologetic about doing things in a particular way because you share some of that or you encounter it within your, the context you're from, even you, you may not be that way yourself. You know people like that. So it's just, you accept each other. Is it wrong? Is it wrong for the American church in XYZ place to say, we're a community that's welcoming, that's open, but we have a particular identity within a particular Christian confession, and that's who we are. 
I have two reactions and one of them is fine if that's who you are and we're going to be American, we're going to be identified, we're going to have the strong liturgy. And we've been in conversations with some people who are definitely doing that and saying we have a very strong pastor-led congregation. So I'm going to be the one that has the identity and I will communicate that identity to everyone else who comes in. The caveat has to be for me, who is God sending to us? I mean, we have a choices around, okay, this is our identity, this is our home, this is how we're going to express our faith. But also, especially with English being the common business language becomes the language that you're going to go worship in if you can't worship in the language of origin. And so as an English-speaking congregation, be it British, be it American, be it Canadian, you become a place of others arriving and that you can walk around the communion table saying, you know, people from the North, South, East, and West are there. Now, I know you know that. I know that you're one of the most welcoming people I know. It's one of the reasons I enjoy spending time with you and working on this project with you. My response is more around God sends us people. In my tradition, God sends people to me, and it's on me to figure out why and to figure out how that interaction happens. And so I'm not entirely sure we get to be purely American Unless you're also, I mean, I've seen congregations as one of my pet peeves is you will happily take photos of people from around the world and put them on your webpage, but you won't actually include those people into your decision-making process, which can be challenging because you also have the, you know, the cultural differences of high power and low power conversations about how you can share leadership or not share leadership. And Americans are going to share leadership a lot because that's just kind of who we are. And yes, we have opinions about how you, the pastor, are sharing your time and we expect to be heard, whereas other cultures are not going to have that conversation. So that's another place of tension. If you want to sit down and say, we're going to be an English-speaking congregation, we also need to accommodate what does a Sunday school look like? What does expectations around child behavior look like? Are we quiet in church? Are we not in quiet in church? If you make those clear decisions, communicate them and all welcoming who God sends us. I think you're in for a very lot of hard work, but I think that's what you're being called to do. We are being called to do is to figure out ways to be deliberate about accommodating all of these different gifts of people. And you have lived it. You are been in several congregations, leading congregations doing this work. And so. Thank you for that. I'm curious where some of the boundaries are, right? And there aren't clear boundaries, which is, I think, why it's not easy to define where those boundaries are. Exactly. And, and sometimes... I like systematic approaches. So the questions we're asking for English-speaking congregations, why don't we ask them of, of other congregations? Part of that's simply because our lives have been within this particular congregation. Correct. So it's right. easy for us to ask because these are the things that we know, either because we've done research, because we've served in them, we, we worship in them. And because of our whiteness, we also want to be conscious of how race, how colonial attitudes are still a part of who we are. Right. And so having a lot more sensitivity, but, you know, wanting to have that. So that's also driving some of our conversation right. as well and, and being quick to critique. But what's interesting and in the example that David gave about the American Protestant church in Bonn, they chose an American identity. They intentionally, right. not an English speaking identity. They chose right. an American identity. And that's where it began thinking in my head, okay, well, what does this mean? Because we, we, we use English speaking and American as synonyms where, okay, they've chosen an American identity. Now, may, nobody maybe knows what that means, but they've chosen that identity for their community after discernment. 
right? They had faced this existential crisis post-German reunification that they really had to say who we're going to be. Now, maybe we think they picked the wrong identity, but they, they just didn't say one day to the other, okay, we're, we're this and that, you know, they had some type of process and, and maybe that would be more interesting to, to learn about and see where that took them. For me, again, I like the boundaries. Like, where does this, yeah. and if we're saying this about English speaking, why don't we say this about, you know, here there's a German speaking Lutheran community. It's interesting because they do some Italian language worship. But like many of the congregations that have been long established foreign language communities in Europe, they still bring somebody from the homeland. You know, it's still a German pastor. Now, he spent most of his ministry in Italy. So he's an exception, really. Still, they brought a German to do a German speaking congregation. Well, and if I may just say briefly, I think not that I have a solution on where this balance might be, but I think there is a, an honoring of distinctiveness or of historical distinctiveness that can be life-giving. Um, and then, of course, there, there are versions of that that can be life-denying. Um, you know, I, I uh, think particularly in, in the context of the American Protestant Church here, as you mentioned, which uh, arguably, I mean, for some, it's not, a, I think, an either-or situation with this either. I mean, the word American likely does turn some people away um, unintentionally. Um, however, my understanding of what these, the, the sort of original, uh, that group of, of people in this transition period were really envisioning was that that community stood for, the, <laughs> with that risk of being too laudable, uh, sort of the highest goals for German-American friendship. Um, I think we have to remember that, and, and I speak of this with a certain level of humble pride, if that's possible, just as a resident of this community, that it was there that our nations started to piece the world back together. You know, and this little humble village that they built from nothing out of a forest on the Rhine. And I don't say that with a sense of like a sort of false patriotism. It was a, a common effort. And even the Stimson Memorial Chapel is named as a monument to American German friendship. You know, even in the naming of the place, I think there was, of course, a politically laden, but a genuine attempt to strive for something greater. Of course, that was in the realm of national interest, but I think there's also a deeply Christian component of that. I think it does go back to that in each congregation and in each time, whether an international church or not, a congregation has to decide what makes us unique, and yet in that uniqueness, how do we embody the welcome to God's table that we are called to embody? And that really is an indisputable component of the gospel. Thank you for listening to the Intentionally International podcast. Find us online wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts and give us a five-star rating to help others discover this podcast. Visit our blog on our website at iipodcast.org. Mm-hmm.